This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Even with some of the things going on in the world right now, North Korea, Russia, Brexit, and others, Wall Street keeps chugging along. The markets are seemingly posting new record highs almost every day at this point. The rate of growth isn't as quick as we saw in the last couple of years, but it is still growth. So what is spurring that move? Wharton grad Mark Zandi is chief economist at Moody's Analytics. He's based in the Philadelphia suburbs, and he joins us to talk about that and a variety of other topics. Mark, great to catch up with you again. Good morning, Dan. Uh, speaking of chugging along, I, I want to start for a second with jobs because you obviously are, are uh, very uh, wary of, of the jobs numbers. Uh, we keep chugging along with these gains, yet seemingly we're at, quote unquote, full employment. The question is, can that continue in your mind? No, uh, job growth will slow. Uh, we we already are seeing a record number of open job positions, and I think uh, we we will see businesses having increasingly difficult increasing difficulty filling those open job positions. So I, I would expect job growth to to slow, and it it is. Uh, I mean, just to give you a number, if you go back to 2014. We were creating 250,000 jobs per month on average. In 2015, we were down to 225. Last year, it was 185. This year, 180. So the slowing has begun, and it'll continue. And um, just to give you a sense of where we're headed, uh, the growth in the labor force is is no more than 100K per month. So that's where we're headed. What does it mean for, for wage growth? Because that's another topic that has been discussed quite a bit, especially in the last couple of jobs reports where, I mean, we're seeing some growth, but uh, not probably a lot of what people would like to see. Wage growth will will pick up. It already is. It's yeah. slowly but steadily accelerating. Uh, there's lots of different measures of wages. The best measures that uh, that correct for uh, lots of measurement issues show a steady, slow but steady acceleration. And I would expect that to continue. I'd be very surprised. I think there's a a long a longer lag than in times past between right. the tight labor market and wages, just because the last time we were at full employment was 10 years ago. So workers are kind of on their back foot. You know, they, they're cautious, and it's going to take a little bit of time before they feel confident enough to ask for those bigger pay increases. Well, uh, going to Wall Street for a few minutes, uh, obviously the numbers have been steadily increasing pretty much every day, uh, especially the NASDAQ and the, and the S&P 500. What are you seeing there? Why are we seeing this just kind of continued wage growth, or I should say growth on Wall Street? And, and I mark that because normally when you start to have global events, it usually does affect Wall Street to the negative. You know, we've got a variety of different things out there, uh, but seemingly nothing that's slowing Wall Street down. Well, I think investors see the great economy. You know, the economy is solid, uh, has been, we're, you know, we're in uh, the eighth year of an economic expansion, and uh, we're, we're continuing, as you put it, chugging along. And I think investors take a lot of solace in that. Uh, earnings uh, of businesses, have improved. You know, they were off a bit a year or two ago because of the collapse in energy commodity prices that took a notch out of earnings, but that stabilized. And so earnings growth is uh, is strong. And interest rates are very low, right? I mean, yep. so investors are saying, uh, you know, where can I put my money? The only place that they, is that, you know, uh, they can get any kind of return at all is in the equity market. Now, having said all of that, it feels like to me, the markets are 
pretty highly valued, right. overvalued, uh, so I'd be cautious. Well, and that was actually, I wanted to bring that up because you did a piece here in the local papers uh, recently, and, and those were that was one of the words you used, you used cautious. You also used the word nervous, and, and what, are you, what are you generally seeing out there as, as why people should be a little wary right now? Just because uh, valuations are very high, uh, I mean, my favorite valuation measure for the stock market is you take the value of all the stocks that are publicly traded, that's the Wilshire 5000, divide that by uh, total economy-wide profits, corporate profits after tax, and uh, that's a, a price earnings multiple, a PE multiple, a measure of valuation for the stock market. Uh, and it currently is as high as it's been since the tech bubble. Now, the tech yeah. bubble was in a universe of all of its own, so we're we're not there. But you know, we are uh, as high as we've been since then. And the, the previous, and we're even higher than uh, uh, on that measure uh, than we were prior to the 1987 stock market crash. So, valuations are high. They should be high. You know, or, again, interest rates are low, so it's not surprising valuations PEs are high, but. They feel awfully high to me, and they keep moving higher. How much of, a, of an impact is it also that, uh, to a degree, it feels like Europe's economy is at least steadying itself, even with the Brexit? Uh, Mario Draghi talking earlier today about, uh, you know, uh, not doing anything for rates over there, at, at least for right now, because he doesn't see, you know, inflation really uh, taking hold as much. How much of an impact is there with that right now? Yeah, that's a good point. I, I, the way I would put it is that the tail risks, the, the risks of a black swan feel like they've receded. I mean, the one big black swan tail risk out there was, was Europe, yeah. uh, particularly a year ago after Brexit and uh, all these elections coming up. And the concern was that they'd go in the wrong direction and lead to the crack up of the Eurozone uh, EU more broadly. Of course, those, those elections, the, the fallout from Brexit has been much less serious than thought. And more importantly, the elections have uh, gone the establishment way, Macron and, and France being the most notable example. So right. the center has has held in Europe, unlike here in the U.S., the center has held in Europe. And I think uh, investors have taken great solace in that. They, 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 that's the fear that you're going to get this big cataclysmic event uh, is uh, has abated, and that's another reason why investors are, are cheered by uh, by things and are, are investing. We're joined by Mark Zandi of Moody's Analytics here on Knowledge at Wharton. We're talking about the uh, U.S. economy and Wall Street uh, as uh, we roll through the month of July. 844 Wharton is the number to give us a call if you'd like to join in. Your thoughts? 844-942-7866 is the number. It almost feels like with some of these things that have you know kind of been potential worry points that uh, investors, uh, citizens just in general, feel like it's almost a little bit of a new norm uh, that we're dealing with. I mean, obviously, North Korea has been a, uh, a very important news item for, uh, you know, several months now. But it almost feels like to a degree that, you know, we're baking a lot of this in. Are you seeing that as well? Uh, yeah, I mean, it may be that we're just getting a nerd to it all. I mean, there's been so much stuff uh, constantly, you know, in our face all the time. Um, and, of course, that reflects events, but it also reflects that uh, we have the media in our face all the time, right? Yeah. We get it in lots of different ways. 
Uh, it used to be when I was a kid, the only you know, only news I got was when I watched the news at night. There was yeah. no, you know, other, you got no other news, right? Right. And, and you, it was just filtered through that half hour with Walter Cronkite. But now it's you know constant all the time through many different channels. So I think we might be just getting a nerd to it. Uh, hard, hard to know what is really important, what's not important, uh, and. Uh, and, and that may be uh, one reason why investors seem to be able to take these hits that they seem to be getting from you know, North Korea might have been a real problem for investors uh, 10, 15, 20 years ago, but, but not anymore. Is, is, there any, is there any concern on your part uh, in terms of you know, the next six months, 12 months, 18 months out because of some of the things we've seen in Washington, D.C., or actually more appropriately, some of the things we haven't seen uh, in Washington, D.C. play out? Obviously, there was the, the want to try and get uh, by uh, President Trump and, and the Republican Congress some form of uh, repair to, uh, to health care. Obviously, now they're they're focusing as well on tax reform uh, in the U.S. Uh, is, is there any concern that a continued struggle to get some of these things forward could have an impact on on Wall Street? Yes, I mean I think if you if you're trying to figure out what could be the catalyst for this 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 correction in stock prices and asset asset markets more broadly, a repricing. Uh, you know, one place would be the Fed and, and market expectations around what the Fed's going to do. There's a big gap there. But the other, obviously, is the one you mentioned, and that's fiscal policy and what's going on in Washington. And I, and I do think investors uh, do believe that we're going to get some kind of tax cut. Uh, maybe not the broad tax reform with the big reductions in marginal rates for businesses and, and individuals that people might have thought after the election. I think people have scaled back those expectations. But right. there's still an expectation out there that something's going to happen uh, with taxes. And if we if that doesn't happen, and as soon as that realization sinks in that it won't happen, uh, then that might be the catalyst for this uh, correction, repricing of, of uh, stock uh, stock values and, and other asset prices. You have also talked uh, recently about Dodd-Frank and, and uh, the potential changes that have been discussed where that is concerned. Take us into your thought process on, on that a little bit, because there is a concern that by some that uh, we are going to see significant change to what Dodd-Frank was and you know what it has been able to do to a degree over the last several years. Yeah, of course, that's the other area where investors might be disappointed. I do think financial stocks have risen a lot in anticipation of some big changes on the regulatory side related to scaling back some of the parts of Dodd-Frank. I'm, I'm very skeptical, though, that anything is going to get through Congress that's going to significantly change uh, the regulatory environment that's been put in place because of Dodd-Frank. Uh, there might be some, some things on the margin, on, on, the, on the periphery, but the big things in Dodd-Frank, you know, the requiring banks to hold more capital, requiring banks and big uh, systemically important institutions to do stress tests, the resolution process for failing non-bank institutions. Right. You know, all these these are the really big, meaty things, the things that really matter. I'd be pretty surprised if you get a piece of legislation that gets through Congress and signed by the president. And that, if that doesn't happen, then that may be also something that uh, investors uh, uh, react to uh, and take down uh, uh, prices for a lot of those financial stocks that have risen so much since the election. But your view on, on the impact that Dodd Frank has had in in it since its uh, inception, uh, what are the what are the pieces that you think have really been, uh, you know, the stalwart pieces? And do you also believe that Dodd Frank is 
as is suggested at times about health care, it is a piece uh, of legislation that, while it has benefits, it probably has some areas that could be tweaked. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't like every Dodd Frank's a lot of stuff, and yeah. so you know, I, it's hard. I can't find anyone on the planet that likes everything. Yeah. Dodd Frank. So, and we can talk about what I don't like, but I mean, at core, Dodd Frank's a pretty good piece of legislation. And bottom line, it makes it much less likely that we will ever suffer a cataclysmic event like the one we suffered with the financial crisis, Great Recession, uh, eight nine years ago. And and the most two most important things in that legislation is one. Uh, the, the banking system, the regulated part of the financial system has to have more capital, lots more capital, and they have to stress test their balance sheet and income yep. statement to make sure they have enough capital. Yep. I, that sounds like, whoa, didn't we do that before? Uh, the answer is no. Uh, yep. But post-crisis uh, Dodd-Frank, the answer is yes. The, the banking system is you know, a meteor would have to land in the middle of Chicago for there to be a problem. I mean, there's <laughs> there. It's like rock solid. Second thing, and this this is not well appreciated, but is the resolution process because the in my mind the thing that turned the the financial event of 08 into a cataclysmic financial crisis was we did not have a resolution process. How do you? How do you uh, help failing institutions that are non-banks get through yeah. the process without taking out the system? And every institution that failed was treated differently by policymakers because they didn't have a process. You know, Bear Stearns, Lehman, AIG, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, I can go on and on. Yeah. But now with Dodd-Frank, you've got a cookbook. Now, will the cookbook work? I'm not sure because we need another <laughs> crisis to see. But it feels like, and, and there's simulations that make it seem like it will work. It feels like at least we have a process. Yeah, I was going to say let's let's try and avoid uh, testing this theory uh, anytime nice. in the ne- yeah. in the next few yeah. few decades At least in our lifetime. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, I'll go back to something you were just saying uh, a moment ago. What is it about Dodd Frank that you don't like right now? Well, I mean, this is really getting into the weeds. I mean, I uh, there's a part of Dodd Frank called risk retention, which means that uh, uh, if you issue securities, then the people who issue the securities have to hold some of that risk. Uh, Five percent is the minimum amount of risk, and the intuition is, you know, very good. It feels good. I mean, it says that you have to eat some of your own cooking, right? I mean, if you own some of the risk, it means you're going to cook up the securities and make them better and uh, of higher quality. Problem is that uh, there's so many ways around the risk retention. It just mucks things up, and it doesn't really solve any problems. It's it's one of those things that it sounds great in theory, but when you get down to the uh, practicality of it. Very difficult to do. The other thing I'd say is that that wasn't really the problem in the crisis. I mean, if you think about the institutions that went down, they the problem was they didn't eat. It wasn't that they didn't eat their cooking. The problem was they ate way too much of it. I mean, Barry right. Stearns blew up on the securities that it issued. Uh, Lehman the same way. So it's you know I don't think we, we're trying to solve a problem that I don't think happened. The other thing is I, I just. There's pluses and minuses to the Volcker rule. The Volcker sure. rule is yeah. big banks have to hive off their proprietary trading. Yep. I, I get the benefits, and again, it's intuitive, but again, we're solving for a problem that uh, we we didn't have, at least in the crisis. And the other thing is the downside of that is it significantly has reduced liquidity in markets. They're, 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 there's just much less trading because you don't have those big banks making markets, which means that if there is an event that uh, that upsets investors, that's going to create much more volatility in markets. Stock prices and, and bond prices and everything else are going to vo- are going to gyrate much more because there's just less liquidity. So I think that's the, if I were 
you know, king for the day. That's the other thing in Dodd-Frank I'd reevaluate. Well, when you when you look at the banking sector in general right now, uh, you know, and obviously this uh, the the what happened in 08 is still uh, very fresh in the minds of, of pretty much everybody in this country right now. There is still at, at the at the really base level just kind of a distrust, I think, by many Americans of what the banking sector is and potentially what it can do. I mean, heck, you know, just several months ago, we're, we're talking about Wells Fargo, big, you know, cooking the books on accounts. You, you know, I mean, if we can still have this, you know, several years after this, I mean, who's to say that, you know, any kind of change to, to Dodd-Frank wouldn't open the doors to, uh, to more trouble going forward? Yeah, good point. Uh, I, I mean, uh, there is, you're, you're right. There's a lot of distrust. I, I will point out, though, uh, this distrust is from the time, from the beginning of time. I mean, sure, yeah. remember Alexander yeah. Hamilton? I mean, sure, the, yeah. In the big yeah. Wall Street, New York banks, people, yeah. Thomas Jefferson distrusted them, him, right? Because yeah. they had all the money and they were, you know, making the rules. So I, I get it. And uh, I do believe that the, bank, the banking system and financial system should be. Uh, should have a bright spotlight on it at all times because there can be abuse and and uh, that's necessary. But I would I will say that post crisis the the probability of those kinds of things happening or, or and or those things happening and not getting exposed, you right. know, e.g. Wells Fargo, are much much lower than they were uh, pre crisis. Mark Zandi joining us from Moody's Analytics. We're talking about the economy and Wall Street right now. Your comments are welcome at eight four four Wharton eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Or if you can't get to your phone, you can send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio one eleven or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney twenty one. When you when you do think about the economy right now and some of the job growth that we've seen and and where we're kind of headed and the potential for you know a, a rise in automation even greater than we're seeing right now uh, a, a lot of people wonder if we are going to be able to kind of break through that one percent versus the 99 percent and it's it's a valid question right now because seemingly the the distribution of wealth has really shifted in the last few years do you think there there is a path to kind of breaking that breaking that down a little bit yeah, good point. It's not a few years, a few decades, really. I mean, well, yeah, the, yeah. yeah, it's been really three or four decades in, in the making. Uh, and therefore, you know, that highlights this is a, a big problem that's going to take a long time to unwind. Um, I, I actually think uh, that um, uh, we are on the uh, – we have seen the worst of the skewing of the income and wealth distribution, and that even if we don't make any policy changes – and I'm not advocating that. I think we should, and we could talk about what those should be. Sure. But even if we don't – I think that the income and wealth distribution will begin to write itself. I, you know, one of the key reasons for the skewing of the income and wealth distribution was the opening up of the uh, global economy uh, through through trade. You know, yeah. NAFTA, China, WTO, uh, even Japan before that, and when it entered on the scene, and that did a, a lot of damage to. Uh, workers that are lesser skilled, uh, less educated, and they got creamed. Right. But that process is is done over. Uh, we're not losing. There's no more jobs to be lost. Uh, in fact, our manufacturers they're they're very competitive. You know, whoever survived, uh, you know, is metal tested and is doing very well and creating jobs. But here's the other thing: the rest of the world now has uh, come into its own in part because we. We help them through the trade process. Yeah. They have deep middle classes, you know, just travel anywhere in Asia or Eastern Europe or Middle East. I mean, you know, th these are very different places than they were 25 years ago. They are now buying things that we produce, services. So 
financial services, accounting, legal, advertising, media, entertainment. You know, these are things that we do better than anyone else on the planet. My point being, globalization, instead of being a problem for the income and wealth distribution, as it has been over the last 25, 30 years, is going to help to solve the, uh, the income and wealth distribution problem going forward because we are right at the point where this is going to be an enormous benefit to all of us. Well, and the dark irony would be if we pull back on that right now, yeah. just when we're on the cusp of, of enjoying the benefits of it. Right. And that's what I was going to say is the mindset uh, around that really has to has to change to a degree or else it's just kind of multiplying the negative in this case. Yeah, no. And that's, you know, that's what worries me. Right. With part, one of the big worries I have about policy now is fiscal policy is, tr- is trade policy. And if we're going to backtrack and we're going to try to be solving a, a problem that we had, but is not the problem we're going to have going forward. So, it, you know, it's just uh, unfortunate that, you know, for example, TPP, that's the Trans-Pacific Partnership, Partnership yeah. not doing that is like a grave error, huge. I mean, we're just ceding our ability to uh, to benefit from the enormous growth that's going to happen in much of Asia and in the Pacific Rim. And instead of leading the way, we're going to be following. And so, you know, that was, in my mind, you know, it's not one of those things that's existential in a given year. It doesn't matter for growth this year or next year. But over the next 20 or 30 years, yeah. uh, that would be that's going to be a big mistake. Especially since China is, is going to continue to exactly. grow as an, as an economy in the years to come. Exactly. Go back to tax reform for a second, because I only have you for a couple more minutes. Um, when you look at what is really been kind of the narrative around doing tax reform uh, in, in the last six months, months or so, uh, obviously it's either been on the personal side or the corporate side. And a lot of people have focused on the corporate side at, at this point, if you're putting, you know, if you have that crystal ball in front of you, is, is there one side or the other that you think has the better chance of really seeing, a, I can't even say significant change, but seeing change right now, either the personal side or the corporate side? I actually have three crystal balls. You know, I'm looking at all three. Nice. Good job. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, unfortunately, they're telling me different things. That doesn't doesn't help you in any way, shape, or form, does it? (laughs) You know, different probabilities. Hey, you know, I I think the most, uh, the area where we have the uh, most chance of getting something done, and I think which could be helpful is on the corporate tax side, you know, particularly around how we tax multinationals. You know, we have this weird territorial, so-called territorial system, uh, excuse me, worldwide system. And there's an effort to move it closer to a territorial system, which is similar to, more similar to to tax codes in the rest of the world. If we did something like that, I think that could be a plus, particularly we could figure out a way to make it roughly deficit neutral. The worst thing we could do is give these massive tax cuts to businesses and individuals and then finance it with a bigger deficit. That would be, you know, a huge error. All right. So I'm going to book you out for six Six months from now uh, to bring you back on and do a similar inter- similar type of interview. If I'm doing that, what do you think we're going to be talking about basically the same issues in six months? Or do you think we have the opportunity to see some some not significant change, but see some moderate change at this point? Uh, we'll be talking about different things. I mean, the, we'll be talking more about – we didn't talk about the Fed and monetary policy. Yeah. I think that will be front and center. Yeah. On, on the fiscal policy side, I'm not so sure. I mean, you know, uh, it doesn't feel like the president can get out of his own way. So yeah. it makes me less confident that we're going to see anything on that side. Uh, we'll be debating it, but uh, less, uh, less on that side. But the one thing I do know is that the world keeps turning and sure. you know, yeah. uh, we'll have plenty to talk about for sure. Mark, as always, great to have you. And always great to have a Wharton grab back on the radio with yeah, us. Oh, my pleasure, Dan. Thanks, Mark. And we will book you out. Figure on it. Six months from now. 
We'll get uh, you. We we'll get you after the first of the year. You know, just call. Have Patty give me a call. You got it. Thanks, Mark. All, right. All the best. Thank you, Mark Zandi. Great guy from Moody's Analytics. Their chief economist really has his finger on the pulse of a lot of things regarding the economy, and uh, he is uh, one of the people behind the uh, ADP payrolls report, which comes out uh, every month just in advance of the Labor Department uh, numbers. They really look at the uh, private sector uh, job growth. Uh, so great to have Mark on the show. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.